every day it's story after story after story, if not patients, of some really courageous nurses and doctors that are telling us their stories from wherever they're serving. And it may be never within our lifetime that we have heard so much or considered so much about how those who are in the healthcare profession are having to fulfill their vocation at great risk to themselves. And never have we perhaps heard in our lifetime the degree to which it's taken such a toll on those who give themselves fully unto that end, especially in the hot spots of this world. And when you think about it, it's hard to find a good doctor. We have high expectations for them. We, we want them to be brilliant in their aptitude. We want them to be courageous in the efforts that they take. We want them to always be curious about what is the true nature of our condition and what will really be of assistance. And, and perhaps above all, we want somebody to have a concern for our whole person. We want them to show compassion. And all of those attributes we might reasonably expect, they're just a rare find in doctors. It's a rare thing to have, and yet it's the doctor we want. It's the doctor that we need. For the last several months, we've been looking at moments, encounters that Jesus has, each of which Jesus shows himself in the way how he characterizes himself, kind of as a good physician, a good doctor. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage, kind of reverting back from those resurrection narratives to a moment earlier in his ministry in which we're going to see him being a good doctor in full display. It is a rich story. It's a raw story. It's probably so familiar you need to hear it again. I need to hear it again because it's in this story, which has a lot to do with water, that Jesus is going to remind us of what is at the base of our true condition. But he's also going to show us why he himself is a good doctor. And so as we listen to him encounter a woman at a well, we're going to consider several reasons why he's a good doctor. And then at the end, we're going to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a good patient? So if you're able, I wonder if you might stand and hear this story again. A story that you know, but a story you may need to hear for whatever reason. Today's scripture reading is from John 4, verses 1 through 30. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, 
and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will now become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the, this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband to come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claimed that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is the word of the Lord. So from the very first moment of this passage, there's already tension in the air. Jesus is relocating strategically from the highlands of Judea north to the plains of Galilee. And to us, that seems like an unremarkable moment that it would say that he had to go through Samaria because that's the shortest distance between two points is to go through there. But if you're reading this passage or hearing it for the very first time, you're already feeling, oh, now that's, that'll be an interesting moment. And we all ask ourselves, why? Why would there be tension in the air? Well, at a well with his disciples on their way to go get food, he has this encounter with a woman, a woman of Samaria. And in that scene, the plot thickens just by the scene itself, by the very fact of this woman of Samaria's presence in the way that she is. First of all, there's, there's all sorts of wells where she is, and yet she seems to have walked the furthest distance in order to get to this well. And she's doing so at high noon, the sixth hour, the heat of the day. If you want to carry a big heavy jug of water, you go early in the morning or towards dusk. Here she is at high noon with the sun right above her, and she's doing so flying solo. It's usually the sort of thing of safety in numbers. You go with the other townspeople to go do this. She's doing this alone. So there's already a strangeness to the moment that contributes to a sense of tension. And that tension sort of breaks out in sharp relief just by the first exchange between she and Jesus. Jesus looks at her and says, could I have a drink? And 
maybe with a half surprise and a half a bit of snark, she looks at him and says, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? And then for those of us that have no background about what's going on here, John explains, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, that means Jews refrain from touching about anything that Samaritans touch. And we might ask ourselves, why? In this moment, we are seeing the full relief of the estrangement between Jews and Samaritans in just the first couple verses. This is a Hatfields and McCoy situation. There is bad blood between Jews and Samaritans, even though they have a common origin. They all look to the patriarchs as their fathers in the faith. But when Israel splits into northern and southern kingdom nine centuries earlier, and then the Assyrian Empire swoops in and carts off the northern kingdom in Samaria, takes away their brain trust, and then settles Israel's land and intermarries with Israel's people, by this time, by this encounter, if you're a Samaritan in a Jew's mind, you have the reputation of being somewhere between a political rebel an ethnic half-breed, or a religious turncoat. And so we have here, this moment, that even four chapters later, in John chapter 8, you hear Jews insulting Jesus by ascribing to him the name of a Samaritan with a demon. There's no love lost here. And that's why you can imagine this woman looking at Jesus through squinted eyes, because she knows how Jews think of touching the things of Samaritans. She knows that Jews think that that makes them ritually unclean. In our day, it would be like somebody walking down the street, coughing in their hand, and then reaching for a shake. And we think, mm, uh, thanks, I'll pass. But this is the first reason why we think Jesus is a good doctor. He's a good doctor because he looks past all of the social reasons for social distance and just ignores them. He doesn't care. All of those social reasons that those in that day or in any day might use as a justification to steer clear of you because you're different or you're other, Jesus doesn't take those social reasons into consideration. Who he is, what he has, what he has for you is not shaped, changed, or affected by the origin you come with or the history that you have around your neck. He's a good doctor we need. He's a good doctor we need because he doesn't require that you fit a certain profile. He doesn't require that you have a particular background to get his full attention. He is a good doctor because you don't have to be seen by some in a certain way. You don't have to measure up to a set of expectations in order to get his full concern. That's what makes Jesus a good doctor. It's not the only reason. The, the moment that descends upon them already has the reasons to create tension. And this woman of Samaria has not done really anything to sort of diffuse some of that tension. And yet Jesus looks at her despite the way she looks at him and says, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. There it is, everybody. There's the center of this message. The 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 place where we're going to have to focus most of our attention, this thing about living water. It's the heart of what he has to say to her. It's the heart about what he has to say to us. And that's why we, we remember what it says there in that clip at the top of the service from once upon a time where it comes to water, especially in this moment, it is a powerful, transcendent image. But before Jesus even gets 
into the slightest explanation about what he means, he shows us one other reason why he's a good doctor. Because what do we see in a moment like that? Despite her reasons, despite her reasons to, to maintain the tension, he is willing to give from his doctor's bag to her whatever she needs and on the basis of only one thing, what her need is, nothing else. No preconditions, no qualifications. She doesn't have to prove her worth to him. She doesn't have to impress him with any kind of knowledge or skill. He gives to her what she needs only on the basis of her need. All she has to do is ask. And that's what a good doctor does. But in that moment, this woman, she is just like us. Because when she hears the words free gift, you almost hear in her tone again a certain measure of, right, living water, free gift, I wonder. And then it almost becomes a little bit of iciness or maybe even feistiness. She, she says to him, living water, right, oh, well, and, and what will you be drawing with to get that living water today, sir? And then she goes full knives out. Are you greater than our forefather Jacob who gave us this well, who gave us this land? You talk a big game in so many words. And at that moment, you know what Jesus could have done or what we might have done? We might have thought to ourselves, right, understand. Thank you, ma'am. Have a good day. And they move on. But he doesn't. He looks past all of her iciness, all of her feistiness, for whatever reason, and offers her a warm bowl of truth. He wants to share with her something really critical for her own sake. And that's why you heard him say in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There it is, water. Water we know is crucial. It's essential to existence. It hydrates our cells. It keeps our organs functioning. It cleanses our system of impurities. It is life. Apart from it, there is no life. But when Jesus adds this idea of living water, fresh water, flowing water, water that is not stagnant, that is full, he is trying to say that there is something more to the water that he has on offer than what the water she's familiar with and the water that we're familiar with. That this water, whatever it might be, is not something that you have to go seek repeatedly because it's going to run out. It's not something that you just receive and are nourished by for a season. This water, this living water, is not only a means to life, it becomes a source of life to others. It is a water that we receive, and then that water that is in us becomes a spring that flows up from us. It is a, a provision of life, but it's also a source of life. So what is it? What's this living water? We all know Jesus is not just speaking in terms of a metaphor. What's he talking about? What's the living water? He's only introducing the idea here to this woman at the well. But three chapters later, in John 7, he's at the Feast of Israel, the Feast of the Tabernacles, when they're celebrating the time when Israel is out wandering in the desert. And there, in John chapter 7, he says this, in verses 37 through 39. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John helps us know what he means. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. There it is. This living water 
is something to do with the Holy Spirit. If anyone thirsts, he shall have rivers of water flowing from him, and that water is the Spirit. So, what is it? The living water is a gift. The living water is a source of life both in you and through you, and it is a source of life as a consequence of God dwelling in you by his Spirit. It's a gift. And therefore, Jesus' interest in her and in us all is more. It's just like a good doctor. It's more than just in relieving pain. It's about making us whole. It's more than just applying a Band-Aid. It's about seeing something become true in us that we might become true in our fullness. It is something more than just treating symptoms. It is getting to causes. It is something with giving attention to discomfort, all in a measure and in search of trying to something that finds healing. Jesus is out to tell us about a greater healing in mind, and that healing comes by the Spirit of God that comes to us as a gift. And that sounds great. And that sounds like something a pastor would say. And it may be even something that you've heard before. But it may kind of fall like a thud. Right. Living water by virtue of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Um, what's the big deal? Don't worry. It thudded like her too. She doesn't get it. Uh, she's not really even curious about it, except to wonder, how does she get some of that water so that she doesn't have to keep coming back here to this hot, solitary, dry well? And that's where Jesus, like a good doctor, does one other thing. Before he gets to talk to her about healing, he's got to shoot straight with her about what the problem is, where the sickness lies, and he doesn't flinch in sharing that news in order to get to better news. If you're going to heal a boil, you first have to lance it. And Jesus is out to lance it. And how does he do that? He asks her to do something. Go fetch your husband, he says to her in verse 13. And at this point, the woman at the well has been, as they say, a chatty Kathy. All sorts of things to say. But here, in response to that question, four words. Three words if you're counting in the Greek. I have no husband. And Jesus says, you speak the truth. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. You speak the truth. And the whole room just got a little bit more awkward. What is this good doctor up to? Why would he ask her to do that? What does that have to do with anything? And why is he exposing something to her that in, pipe, in, in polite company she might then blush and want to change the subject? He's not out to shame her. He's not out to silence her. He is what you might say a radiologist does when he comes into your room and turns on the light and shows you the x-ray and says, have a look here. This is what's the problem. In that moment, he's out to share with her something important. Even as he's add a little awkwardness to the room, Jesus is acting like a good doctor to show you what's wrong in order that you might know what's up in healing. We don't know why she's had five marriages. Jesus is not against marriage. If anything, he's told us at other times the very narrow set of justifications for divorce. But we don't know why she's had five marriages. We don't know if they've all abandoned her. We don't know if they've abused her. We don't know if she's a widow five times over. All we know is this, she's given up on marriage. And now she's willing to make herself the most vulnerable to someone who is not really willing to commit their full selves to her. 
it's come to this. And Jesus is saying, without saying in that moment, do you see the folly in your search? Do you see how often you've gone back to this well thinking that you would get a different result? What Jesus is out to expose her in that moment is not simply that she's not married, but that she's made the love of a man a substitute for God. That's the affliction. That's what he's come to heal. She's gone to that well five and a half times, and she's come up empty. And so he's saying without saying, go fetch me that thing that you think is going to solve your issue, but won't. And in the same way that he says to her that, he is saying to us and to me, go show me everything that you've come up with as a substitute for God. Go show me the wells that you keep going to over and over and over again, thinking that it's only a matter of time before they finally deliver what you thought they would, and then you'll be content. And then tell me how that's going. That's his word to her. That's his word to us. And in that moment, you can sense that she realizes the scrutiny is upon her, such that she commits what is probably the, the best example of someone ever trying to go with Jesus and go, Squirrel! She changes the subject. She says to him, You seem to be a prophet. You know a lot about me. But she doesn't want to talk about that anymore. And so she uses the opportunity to sort of quiz him on his theological prowess. She says, So, tell me, prophet, where do you worship? Here at Mount Gerizim? Or where you say in Jerusalem, you Jews. And if you'll just bear with me a little bit of the historical background to explain what feels like a funny question. And yet, know this, Jesus is not only a good doctor, he's a good doctor that knows jujitsu. He takes the momentum that she uses to maybe knock him off his block and uses that momentum against her to make a point that he's been trying to make from the very beginning of this encounter. See, if you're a Samaritan, then you know about the Torah, because you have the Torah, it's your Bible. And in that Bible, you know that both Abraham and Jacob made sacrifices not far from Mount Gerizim. But if you're a Samaritan, and you got carted off to Assyria in the 8th century, then you don't have any other books in your Bible. You don't have any other books that speak of King David setting up a temple in Jerusalem. You think worship is to be done somewhere else. The Jews, with more revelation, figure out that the temple is supposed to be in Jerusalem. So there's the question. There's the rub. There's the reason for her changing the subject. And again, Jesus uses her question to his own advantage. Don't get lost in the details there. Jesus, in this moment, is out to use her very question of worship to make a point about it. That worship, he says is not a matter of geography. Worship is primarily about a matter of knowing and delighting in the object of worship. What matters to Jesus, he says, is worship in spirit and in truth. And the kinds of worshipers that God seeks are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And all that sounds high and rich and deep, but what does it mean? Let me borrow a voice that I've shared with you before. In fact, let me borrow a word that I've shared of his before with you also that I think brings that high-sounding word down from the top shelf. David Foster Wallace, he's an author, and ironically, in this essay entitled 
this is water, he said this about worship. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. Everybody worships. She worships at Mount Gerizim. He says salvation is from the Jews. Worship happens in Jerusalem. And yet now he's out to tell her and us all that the true worship is done in spirit and truth. Is worship a default setting? Yes. Worship of all sorts of things, a default setting, yes. So default setting that you might worship the love of a person? Absolutely. So default that you might seek likes and comments and affirmations at every turn? Absolutely. So default that you will go to the well a hundred times for power and beauty and authority and approval and prestige and all of that? Yes, default. But insidious and evil? David Foster Wallace doesn't think so. I think perhaps Jesus might beg to differ. If you will think only for a moment the way in which you are led to worship that which is not of God and how that can shape every other relationship and thing you know, you know how easy for that to become both a heinous and hateful act. The degree to which you invest in things to the neglect of other things that you know are more important, everybody worships. And that itself is insidious and default and evil. But what David Foster Wallace is saying in that famous quote is nothing too distant from what Jesus is out to tell this woman at the well. That where you go to the well is at the heart of what you worship. That what you seek over and over and over again, thinking it will bring you satisfaction, that is where the deepest motivations of your heart lie. That's what it means to worship in spirit. Except Jesus is saying there's a way of worshiping in spirit that's not in the truth. Because all of those other things will not bring to you the same thing that God is offering to us by His Spirit. This living water is a gift and by it, it comes life. And that is what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Her love of a man, her questions about worship, it all fits together. Where you go to the well most often is a window into what you worship. And you do it and I do it. And Jesus is saying, there is only one worthy of that worship, a worship that's in spirit and in truth. And the question to us all that he leaves us with is this, how? How do we get that living water? 
how do we that that sort of orientation to life whereby he is our greatest thing and everything else falls in submission to it even good things that we love and properly desire we get it from what she comes to the conclusion of at the end of the passage he says all he says and she marvels at him and she also changes the subject again and she says you know we think there's a messiah coming and that he will guide us he will explain and jesus says I'm your huckleberry. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one who's he. And in her mind, this Messiah, he'd be a guide. He would reveal much. He would be a prophet. But what we come to learn from Jesus is as his being the Messiah, he was a lot more than a prophet, a lot more than a guide. Because just like he comes to a well and asks her for a drink, there would come a moment where he's hanging from a cross and he says, I thirst. And in that moment, we see the last reason why Jesus is a good doctor. Because he puts himself in harm's way, the ultimate harm's way, in order to bring for us an ultimate healing. And that's what we call good news. And that's the hope we hang our hat on. He is the one who went into harm's way to make us whole, to reconcile us to God, and to promise us a future, and to build into us a life that becomes not only a source of life for us, but a source of life through us. You may have heard in recent weeks of the Hasidic Jewish community in New York City, which was nailed by the virus. So many of them caught it. But many of those who survived, if not all of those in the Hasidic community that survived, they immediately went to the plasma donor centers and gave the plasma that it might be a therapy to those that are suffering from the disease. In that moment, salvation was from the Jews. And Jesus, just like they, his fellow Jewish brethren, gives that which is his to those who have not, that they might live and that they might have life. And that's his story because he's a good doctor. In closing, let me put it this way. If he's a good doctor, what does it mean for us to be a good patient? What does this woman say to the townsfolk, the people that she might have otherwise avoided at all costs because of the eyes of ostracism that would have come her way at every glance? Why does she go back into that town and what does she say to them? She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. He knows her. He knows her and he gives her a gift anyway. He knows her story of all of the parts that are true and wondrous and the parts that are in her mind sordid and problematic and sinful, and he loves her anyway. Come see a man that tells me everything I ever did. What does it mean to be a good patient before a good doctor who is Jesus? Let him tell you everything you ever did. Let him put your story in the context of his story. Let him draw out the implications for all the choices that you've made and the heart and the heart that all those choices derive from. Let him set in his context those things you now regret. And let him tell you the folly that is beneath them and before them and within them. But at the same time he's exposing to you the harm and the folly, let him also be the one to pay an ultimate price in order to give you what is ultimately free. 
free to you, costly to him, life for you now, and a life even on the other side of death. It's what a good doctor does. And that's the good doctor we need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.